The following is a presentation of the Retro Network. Welcome to another edition of Wizards Half. These are the episodes where we get into all the nitty-gritty details we didn't have time for on the main episode. Ooh, in this case, the monumental main episode. Yeah, there was a lot going on. We definitely had a great, great conversation. I think you could sense the excitement and the joy that Michael were having for our last time out for the foreseeable future, at least on the main episodes. Like he said, you're still going to be able to find Mr. Kennedy on Patreon, so we will be there doing our Patreon chats, doing 90s Super Cinema, but also he'll be popping up the Wizard Files interviews that he's going to be helping to arrange a lot of, and things of that nature. You know, he's still a part of the team. He's not leaving the show in any way, just not on the mic every other week to cover an issue of Wizard Magazine. But of course, we now have Michael Schwartz. Super excited to have Mike as part of our team. It's going to lead to a lot of opportunities that are to come uh, in 2024, so stay Stay tuned for the news on that. But before we get into our main segments that we are so familiar with on the Wizards Half episodes, I did want to get into the Bunny Award for this issue in the Magic Words section, because this is for Super Wizard Magazine nerds, alright? This one is from Clario Gonzalez of Milwaukee, Wisconsin. This is a multi-question letter, so I'm going to do a call and response type of thing, read the question, then give Jim McLaughlin's response here. I hope you're ready for some laughs. So first off, dear Mr. McLaughlin, I have some personal questions. One, did you feel proud when you stole Jim Lee's bathrobe at the 1996 San Diego Comic-Con? And Jim says, I have some personal answers. Damn straight. And we were even more proud when we lifted his robe at the 97 San Diego Con. That theft required a three-man team effort and a lot of sneakiness. You can read all the gory details in bullpen in Wizard number 74. But also, if you've listened to many episodes of The Wizard Files, you've heard a lot of these stories. All right, number two, would you do it again? Nah, the whole robe deal is getting a bit passe. This year, we steal his underwear, or his woman, or both. <laughs> Number three, my little brother asks if he can have the robe. You could probably swipe another. Tell him he can. I feel secure that we can steal whatever we want from Jim Lee at will. So, the 96 robe is on its way to Milwaukee. Now, here's the thing. Wizard was just crazy enough to fulfill that type of promise. Like, he might have been making a joke, but I think Jim McLaughlin could have sent that robe out. So, Clario Gonzalez, if you still have it, you gotta reach out to us. You gotta show us that robe. Alright, number four. I saw a copy editor, Greg Orlando, in Wizard number 80's One of the Damned. Don't you think he's creepy looking? I know I do. I won't woke up in a cold sweat thinking about those evil beady eyes of his. But Jim defends his co-worker, saying, Greg may be a bit toad-like and shifty, but I don't think he's all that creepy looking. And on a related note, if you find yourself dreaming of Greg Orlando, might I suggest you evaluate Evaluate where your life is going. <laughs> Greg Orlando is a friend of the show. He's a handsome fella. He's one of our favorite wizard staffers. You back off there, Clario. All right, number five. Who do you think would win in a fight? Orlando the nerd or you? 
Uh, I hope it never comes to that, but since Greg is very fragile and weighs a mere 87 pounds soaking wet, only one answer is possible. I'd mop the floor with the little twerp. <laughs> Clario adds, P.S. I despise Greg Orlando. To which Jim responds, P.S. Greg's really not that bad once you get to know him. Heck, he's almost human. <laughs> oh man, having some fun at Greg Orlando's expense. So because of our connection to the man in question, I decided to reach out out to Greg Orlando and get his take to see if he had a rebuttal all these years later to this gentleman really ripping him to shreds in the pages of Wizard. And here is Greg's response. Imagine my surprise as a young copy editor for the serial enthusiast publication Wizard. I was made first to translate Mr. Clario Gonzalez's confusing series of yellow and green crayon scrawls into words and then sentences. Having done so and noting that Sisyphus had it easier, I was exposed to a new indignity with a casual and practiced cruelty that was, unfortunately, common to Wizard of that era. I then edited Gonzalez for the purpose of publication within the letters column magic words. Of Gonzalez, a cursory scan reveals the cruel mistress life has squatted directly over him and released its bowels. I'm not suggesting this is because of his hateful screed, but I am not not suggesting it. I will neither speak further ill of the man nor comment save to say the great hope is Mr. Gonzalez grew up. Be well. Sincerely, Greg. <laughs> So there you go. A man of quite impressive word selection and structure all these years later. So yes, thank you, Greg, for that response. And let us indeed hope that Mr. Claudio Gonzalez and the rest of us have grown up. But you know, there's a joy you never grow out of, and that's winning free stuff. So it's time to check out Cap's Kooky Contests. Marvel Entertainment presents a new era for X-Men. Draw your version of the X-Men from any time period. Using your favorite lineup of X-Men, draw the team as if its members had appeared any time other than in the 1990s. For example, the original four X-Men were created in the 1960s, and it showed. But what would your X-Men have looked like if they were around in the swinging 50s or the roaring 20s? What about 1 million BC? You decide, draw them up, and send it on in. Grand prize, one lucky renegade, wins the super slick Wolverine unmasked cold cast statue, a copy of the essential X-Men number one and number two, an X-Men t-shirt, an X-Men keychain, and the nifty X-Men The Ravages of Apocalypse Total Quake Conversion PC CD-ROM game. Man, that was a mouthful. I am very curious about this though. So this was like a reskinned Quake and you could play as the X-Men? I have not heard of this. Gonna have to look that up on YouTube. First prize, one lucky time traveler wins an X-Men t-shirt shirt and X-Men keychain in a copy of the Essential X-Men number one and two. Second prize, six time bandits each win an X-Men t-shirt and cool X-Men keychain. About those Essential X-Men collections, you guys remember these phone book sized black and white collections of old Marvel comics. So I had a job back in the day. It's very strange. If you heard of the Nordstrom department stores, I was an operator in a phone bank, I guess you would call it. You know, I was in an office with other operators and we 
would direct all of the phone calls that came in for every Nordstrom store in California, all up and down the state. It was very strange. The customers were never calling directly to the store. They were calling to this operator, and then the operator would then page somebody in the store, or at least transfer the call to a specific department within each store. And I had some downtime, and there was a comic book store down the street which rented comics. I had never seen this before. You could borrow comics from them, you know, for a fee. And so I started renting these trades, and I would just read them at work in between calls. And that's where I started reading those early, you know, from Giant Size X-Men number one going forward and catching up. Oh, I should mention too, at that job... There were the, you know, theft prevention professionals, like these undercover, and they weren't secret shoppers, but they, you know, blended in watching for shoplifters. And most of their nicknames that we would have to page to call them into action or if somebody needed to contact them, it was like Bruce Banner. It was Peter Parker. It was very strange. Like they were using comic book secret identities. And this is before there were big superhero movies. You know, this is early 2000s. Now let's get on to the fine print here. Let's see what this is all about. The contest is sponsored by Marvel Entertainment, the keenest bunch of mutants this side of the Mason-Dixon line. They're calling it Age Before Legal Text, instead of Age Before Beauty. Alright, contest is open to anyone except employees of Wizard Entertainment, Marvel Entertainment, their immediate families, and Marty McFly. It's no fair! You have the advantage of already having been to the future, so you know what the team will look like. Plus, you have that really cool car. <laughs> Oh, me back in the day being obsessed with the DeLorean for Back to the Future. I have an issue of Car and Driver where they have the DeLorean on the cover. I went to a DeLorean car show, but by the time I went to that car show, I was already like six feet. And I got in that car, I was like, oh, no wonder this is the perfect car for Michael J. Fox. He's tiny, but I could barely fit in it, which was unfortunate. I also have one of these tiny little TV replicas that plays clips from Back to the Future. And my kids love that thing. It has a little remote control. All right, let's stay on track here. There was only one fine print joke there, which means we're jumping over to our next contest. HBO Home Video presents the Todd McFarlane Spawn 2 Home Video Contest. Grand prize, one Spawntastic reader wins a limited edition, limited edition, frame Spawn 2 animation cell designed by Spawn creator Todd McFarlane, a copy of HBO Home Video Spawn 2 featuring the entire second season of the hit animated show, and an HBO Home Video Spawn 2 t-shirt. First prize, five spawny guys or gals, each win a copy of HBO Home Video Spawn 2. Second prize, ten friends of Malbolgia, each win one HBO Home Video Spawn 2 t-shirt. Want to be the first in your alley to own this cool stuff? Simply fill out the entry form below completely and neatly, stick it in an envelope, mail it in, we'll pick the lucky winners at random. Get to it! Contest is only open to those 18 years and older. And it says here, HBO Home Video Spawn 2 will be available in comic book and video stores everywhere on August 25th, 1998. Available in both uncut collector's edition for mature audiences and special edited edition. That's a, wow, that's a mouthful. Special edited edition PG-13. Go get one! This contest is sponsored by our good compadres at HBO Home Video. Law of the Alley. Contest is open to anyone except employees of Wizard Entertainment, HBO Home Video, Todd McFarlane Productions, their immediate families, and members of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. Come on, the Spawn movie was definitely worthy of a nomination. <laughs> not quite. Not even for special effect. Alright, Wizard Entertainment is not responsible for lost, late, misdirected, or mutilated by clown entries. <laughs> 
All right, one other thing I wanted to mention is that uh, speaking of these wizard contests, so way back when there was a design a madman costume contest that was judged by Mike Allred himself. And we recently just heard on social media from the winner of that contest. Like we posted about it years ago when we covered that issue. But then I guess, you know, as it goes on the internet, you know, you're not always on it every single day, perhaps. And so this person reached out and said, oh yeah, well, I'm the guy who won. It was a guy named Greg Story, S-T-O-R-E-Y. And then as he was looking at it, he's like, wait a minute. One of the other entries is by somebody named Car Andrews. Is that Car Andrews who went on to actually be a professional comic book artist? I mean, how could it not be? You know, like it's it's spelled the same. <laughs> Car Kyle Andrews from Canada. So many pros getting their start in the wizard art contests. All right, let's move on to our next bit of funny business here. So on the episode, you heard Michael and I discussing the 25 most memorable moments in comics history. Kind of debatable for some of those entries. Actually, somebody online also said like, oh, look, it's one of those things where I realize everything comes from the 80s. I was like, yeah, 100%. You see what the was staff was familiar with but there was something we did not cover at the very end of that article they had a sidebar called punchlines comics 10 funniest moments and if you know it's wizard and it's comedy well that's gonna be debatable also so let's check out what their picks were here the first one number 10 lobo versus santa claus the lobo paramilitary christmas special when the easter bunny hires lobo to kill santa claus the main man's only too happy to oblige after a machete duel to the death christmas will never be the same. So, I had this comic. We actually gave it away in one of our prize packs way back when. But the thing about that is, it's not all that funny. I mean, dark comedy, sort of. But it's just kind of like, wow, okay, this is wild. This is wacky. But somebody actually made a live-action version. They made a fan film of Lobo versus Santa Claus, which is on YouTube. I assume it's still there. So that'd be something for you to track down, because I think that's even more interesting. Uh, number nine, Hitman pukes on Batman from Hitman number one. After a nice Indian curry dinner, Tommy Monahan meets Batman who cleans the Hitman's clock and then, well, Tommy pukes on the Cape Crusader. They love that moment so much. They bring it up in so many issues. Jim McLaughlin seemed to think that was hilarious. Number eight, Spidey in the Suburbs. Amazing Spider-Man number 267. While tracking a common thief, Spidey faces his biggest foe, suburbia. With no trees or tall buildings to swing from, Webhead's got to deal with undersexed housewives, a citizen's patrol, and rude dogs. Ooh, I kind of want to read that out because it is kind of funny just to think Spidey had to wander a neighborhood. <laughs> number seven, the Hulk's two wishes. The Incredible Hulk and the Thing, the big change. Offered two wishes while on an alien planet, the Thing considers world peace, while the Hulk says, we want food and want to go home. Seconds later, they're on Earth atop a mountain of hamburgers. <laughs> That's a pretty good interpretation of that from an alien's perspective. Number six, the death of Ant-Man. Fred Hembeck destroys the Marvel Universe number one. After getting soaked and knocked unconscious by the water wizard, Ant-Man's doom awaits. A nice old lady scoops him up and tries drying him in the microwave. Pop! 
Man, that's a fun one. Fred Hambeck. You know his style if you've seen it. It's unforgettable. All right. Hey, look who's back bringing the yuck yucks. Number five, Batman KOs Guy Gardner in Justice League number five. Jerk that he is, Guy Gardner challenges Batman to a fight for leadership of the Justice League. The result? A one-panel fight that doesn't go well for Mr. Gardner. I thought it was funny on the episode how Michael was talking about Guy Gardner's wit. That's why he likes the character. I'm like, does he have wit or is he just a loud man? <laughs> number four, Rick Jones's bachelor party in Incredible Hulk number 417. When his superhero pals throw him a bachelor party, Rick faces the terror of the Akadesiest? Turns out Captain America hired her thinking she was a magician. Not quite. Look it up. Akadesiest? I just, I, I want to know what that word means. <laughs> number three, God versus the Devil. Savage Dragon number 31. It was funny enough when God started duking it out with Satan, but we ripped our stitches when Satan started fighting dirty. Yep, he kicked God in the yahoos. <laughs> We're gonna have to ask uh, Eric Larson about that again here, because we are gonna be interviewing him so soon. Yep, that edition of The Wizard Files will be coming up in early 2024. Number two, Thor turns into a frog in Thor 365. Loki's latest scheme turned Thor to a frog, but after finding his sacred hammer Mjolnir, Thor transformed into the Frog of Thunder. Number one, Father Derenique's death, Preacher number 24. When Star shoves the bloated Allfather out of a helicopter, his shadow looms over two more soon-to-be victims, the inbred descendant of Jesus Christ and a soldier. In an uncharacteristic moment of clarity, moments before impact, the Savior turns to the soldier and says, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. The soldier's response, great. So anything to do with a little bit of blasphemy they thought was funny back in the day. Ooh, they're being so naughty in comics. Uh, anyway, I just wanted to get into that because I thought it was kind of interesting. Along with this... So we talked about the interview with Chris Claremont in here on how he had so many opinions and he revealed some things that never happened. Well, there is a sidebar here called Wrong or Right. And they say Marvel Comics editor and writing legend Chris Claremont has a lot to say about many things. Here's some insight into Claremont's perception of the comics world and his role in it. On fan criticism of Wolverine number 125, quote, We had a number of letters from readers who felt that my interpretations of Kitty Pride, Jubilee, and Wolverine were very retro. It was as if I had picked up where I left off 10 years ago. There is some validity to that, even though I disagree with a chunk of it, but as the writer of the issue in question, and as the creator of most of the characters in question, I have very specific views about who these characters are and how they behave. So interesting. He's just like, you don't like me? This is what I do. Now on having a plot line shot down, quote, you do have occasion where things don't fly. One of my examples involved me taking Kitty Pride, since Excalibur is being canceled, out of the team and putting her in Fantastic for. The only problem was X-Men editor Mark Powers and the writers of the X-Men books had other plans for her. Their wishes take precedence. It may piss me off, but the first rule of this game is play nice with others, whether you're a writer or an editor. I think that would have been fascinating to get Kitty Pride in the Fantastic Four. In fact, I feel like back in the day she would have been an interesting replacement like while Sue Storm was pregnant. I'm surprised that, you know, John Byrne didn't pull her out, but she was probably still heavily featured in the X-Men books 
during that period. But either way, it seems like she'd be a good replacement for the Invisible Woman. All right, last one here on where he gets his inspiration. Quote, I think my best stories are the ones that have a definitive visual image. The X-Men Teen Titans crossover one shot from 1983, starting with me describing that Genesis moment to Louise Simonson, the editor, where Dark Phoenix materializes from primal matter and Darkseid's reaching out, while some John Williams score soars in the background. Some of the best work comes from that visual image. Oh, and if you guys have never read that X-Men Teen Titans, that is a great story. It's just a fun one shot, and it really is the first time the Dark Phoenix was brought back, right? So it's interesting that he was kind of against that in the interview, where he said, I would have just left Jean Grey dead. I mean, I guess it's just Dark Phoenix taking on the form of Jean Grey, although it wasn't really Jean Grey. I don't know. That's That one gets a little murky. But anyway, let's get into our next segment here. It's time for our top 10 heroes and villains list. Look at this here. We got a new number one. It's Batman. Ooh, dramatic backlighting. It's always good for that moody, tough guy look. Not like Bats needs any help looking like the butt-kicking, crook-whooping, take-no-crud from man-woman or small-mammal badass he is. And as the star of about 11 teen titles of his own, more Elseworlds one-shots of miniseries than you could shake Alfred at, the unstoppable juggernaut JLA and hit miniseries such as The Long Halloween, which fans still rave about, Bats just might be the most published read most popular guy in comics. Not bad for a freak who hangs out on rooftops all night and has a fetish for keeping around teenage boys in short pants. <laughs> Wow. Number two is Wolverine. That ain't no head of hair. That's a blue-black lawn. A lawn fortified by Scott's Turf Builder Plus. A set of follicles that even though they ain't adamantium laced could probably snap the blades right off a Toro 5300 lawnmower. To hell with this whole bone claws, adamantium claws debate. It ain't like Wolvie needs metal on his claws when he can just headbutt some bad guy and have him flowing red from the 17 holes he's gonna puncture in his body with that mop of his. Is Wolverine a hairy engine of mass destruction? Yep, you bet. From head to toe. <laughs> oh, the hair. They can't get over it. Number three is Witchblade. Nice lips. You know, after tossing out Arnim Zola and Sasquatch, Little Miss Sari Pazidi is probably the most kissable character in comics. But it's more than just supermodel quality pouty lips that land this generation's bearer of the Witchblade on our little countdown. Try stunning Michael Turner art, for starters, and try the fact that half the David Woolley Christina Z Witchblade writing team, specifically the Z portion, is made up of chicks. Therefore, Witchblade as a character reads like, as scary as this concept may seem, fanboy, a real chick. So there's a a lot to love there. Pucker up, Sarah baby. Praising the book for having a female perspective, but then constantly referring to all females involved as chicks. <laughs> Definitely 1998. Alright, number four is Spawn. What if cars had green headlights? They'd be Spawn. And what if Spawn was a car? Judging from his level of popularity, we're betting he'd be a turbocharged, hood-scooped Ram Air 400 cubic inch beast with leather seats, four on the floor, and some of them fuzzy dice hanging from the rear view mirror. That's the Detroit equivalent of two top-selling comic books and HBO series 
big time Hollywood movie and a sequel in the works. Oh yeah, Spawn would also set gas to the tune of about 1.2 miles to the gallon, but we're willing to bet that the average fan on the street wouldn't care. Well, there was a whole Spawn mobile wizard. Come on, we even got an action figure of it. It showed up at the conventions. Number five is Captain America. Hey, Cap's looking a bit worried here, and with good reason. He's always been the ever-vigilant protector of America's shores, fighting off whatever menace reared its ugly head. Nazis threatening our democracy? Cap was there to stop him. Commies at the door? Cap pushed him out. Alien Kree invading our nation? Cap stomped him, but good. But the next menace? Cap's gearing up for the new British invasion. Teletubbies! Dear God in heaven, we hope he's up to the challenge. Teletubbies. There was a moment, right? I mean, I'm surprised how long Teletubbies Tubbies lasted. I mean, I, and I believe it kind of had a revival. It's sort of still around, but hard to compete with Paw Patrol and all the rest. Number six, Deadpool. What's this? Deadpool's out in public in a torn and tattered mask? Doesn't he realize that's against Marvel Comics dress code? Even if he did, we doubt that Wade Wilson, the mad, wise-cracking merc with a mouth, would pay much attention, and if anyone, like maybe some nosy-ass editor, tried enforcing the rule, Poole would probably just whack him and end that discussion quick, fast, in a hurry. Hey, it pays being a big-time comic star. You get to make your own rules. I'm actually curious to see if Deadpool ever makes it to number one. Is he ever that popular? Number seven, The Darkness. Wolverine could take some styling tips from Jackie Estacado, the darkness boy. Now there's a nice head of hair. Silky smooth, wonderfully lustrous, and full of body. Of course, since Jackie's a well-connected and well-coiffed mob enforcer guy, he probably gets paid more per hit than Deadpool and can afford the finest in men's hair care products. One would think he could also afford some Visine to get the red out of them eyes, but hey, it's all part of the tough guy look. Number eight is Green Lantern Kyle Rayner. This entry ought to delight 51% of readers and piss off 49%. See our discussion of the poll on uh, the main episode, but it says here, why such a division? Kyle's been Green Lantern ever since former GL Hal Jordan went crazy four years ago, but the appearance of a time-traveling Hal in current issues of Green Lantern has fueled an 85% sales increase on GL in just two months. As the debate rages on, and Kyle gets just a little more support than Hal, one thing is sure, the green DC comic sees comes from Money. Ooh. And speaking of green, number nine is Savage Dragon. Now, if you're the dragon, it ain't so easy being green. Despite the fact that old Finhead's looking rather happy and chipper here, he's currently kinda dead. But not to worry, this is comics. Everybody comes back to life. Dragon's scheduled for a more or less rebirth from his more or less death in a couple of months or so. And it's just the kind of wild anything could happen tone in his book that makes the dragon so darn popular. Number 10, speaking of popular, and as I record this, Kisses preparing to perform their final concert of their end-of-the-road tour at Madison Square Garden. Number 10 is The Demon. Yes. Brush up, brush up, brush up. With choppers like these, you'd probably go through about 12 toothbrushes each morning. But with Gene Simmons' money, it's no big deal. Just buy more. The Demon, for those of you just joining us, is Kiss bassist Gene Simmons' character in Kiss the Psycho Circus. And as more and more fans glob on to Kiss the Psycho Circus, the cult of Kiss grows even larger. Kind of makes you wish you spent your youth spitting gasoline at torches instead of getting that law degree, huh? 
<laughs> Speaking of Kiss toothbrushes, because you know I have a story. They released these things called tooth tunes. I don't know if you guys remember these from like 12, 15 years ago, but basically they were toothbrushes that when you pushed the button while you were brushing, it would actually play a song. But it wasn't like it had a speaker in it. It actually worked through vibrations in your teeth. So if you just held it up to your ear, you weren't going to hear it. You had to literally have it touching your teeth. And then like the sonics of all of that would go into your ear canal, to your bones. I don't know how it all worked exactly. But you could only hear the songs while you were playing. And I had a Kiss one that played rock and roll all night. Yes, I was brushing my teeth to Kiss. Well, that's enough of these top 10 popular guys let's find out who was uh maybe not so popular with our mort of the month This time around, it's Dr. Psycho. Honey, I shrugged the stage magician. Young, three foot nine inch Dr. Psycho was laughed at by classmates because he was so damn short and because of what DC Comics turned an, quote, unusually large head. So like any picked on dwarf, he got an attitude and studied psionics. Trust us, this happens a lot. He figured out that by forcibly sucking ectoplasm, that's the substance of spirits, kitties, out of people, he could build stuff out of spirit goop, we guess. So he built big strapping, tough and buff bodies for himself using a machine he called the <laughs> Ectoplasmatron. He then got his ass handed to him by Wonder Woman on numerous occasions and continued being a little person. Of course, that's not the word they used. But anyway, the Mortometer is maxed out almost. We have two empty spaces here, so they didn't think much of him. Although I think that's kind of a good gimmick, right? Is you can create bodies out of ectoplasm. Is that ultimately kind of what Prime did? This little skinny guy builds a giant buff body out of slime? I don't know. It seems to me like it wasn't such a bad idea after all. Speaking of bad ideas, let's check out what was going on in the current crop of comics and whether Wizard thought they were a good idea with the report card. First up is Iron Man by Kurt Busiek and Sean Chen during this Hero's Return era. What you need to know. Mortally wounded by an act of industrial sabotage, billionaire genius Tony Stark saved his own life by designing a high-tech suit of armor. Today, Tony dons the suit to become a modern-day knight in shining armor, the superhero Iron Man. So is that how that was retconned? That became a thing where it was industrial espionage? It had nothing to do with being in the war zone of any foreign country? That's pretty fast. Fascinating. Okay. Now the good. The characters really shine in Iron Man. Though Tony's a billionaire, a technological genius, a ladies man, stuff most of us could only dream of, the writing brings him down to a level readers can relate to. Tony has his problems with women, he cares about his friends, we even get a glimpse of his obsession with the Iron Man armor when he's forced to live without it as a prisoner of the villain Tuatara. Plus, the supporting cast works well. We're made to care more about old-time Iron Man supporting characters like Happy Hogan and Pepper Potts as they go through a 
of separation. Then there's Iron Man's armor, which finally feels high-tech and cutting-edge, whether it's testing a secret installation structure with his seismograph sensors or seeding a snowscape with mini-bombs from a hidden compartment in his glove. The armor has weaponry and gizmos that make Bill Gates drool. On top of all that, the crisp, clean artwork delivers a surprisingly formidable yet fluid suit of armor. Add superb coloring, which enhances Iron Man in every scene, and he got a spiffy-looking book. The bad. For all the great characterization, however, the plots in Iron Man are a little too formulaic. A standard issue goes something like this. Tony gets called in to solve a problem. A villain forces Iron Man into the picture. A big fight scene ensues and Iron Man wins. Yet, despite the straightforward plotting, the stories lack resolution and an enticing gotta get the next issue cliffhanger. In the first six issues, every villain but the Dreadnoughts escapes, leaving open-ended finales and not enough satisfying clues have been revealed to the book's biggest mystery, who's financing all these illegal operations and wants Tony dead? Speaking of villains, where are they? The Dreadnoughts were cool, but instead of Iron Man crushing normal terrorists, why not build up Shellhead's old rogues gallery like Whiplash, Crimson Dynamo, and the Titanium Man? The buzz? Kurt Busiek's popularity places Iron Man consistently on the top 10 bestsellers list, plus issue number 8 is slated to have Whiplash and Spymaster in it, which is a good sign for the book. The skinny? Iron Man's back to basics, almost to a fault. These are the best Iron Man stories we've read in recent memory, but the plots are too straightforward to put the book over the top. Once the nets and bolts include better villains and unexpected predicaments, Iron Man could be one of the strongest books around. The grade? A B. Now this is kind of what uh, Peter Melnick from The Marvelous and I were saying about this book when we were reading the uh, Heroes Reborn special and they were promoting it. We're like, it just, it didn't live up to what we feel Kurt Busiek's strengths are, what he's able to accomplish. And yeah, so I'm glad to see that we weren't crazy. Like, we're just like, oh, well, you haven't read enough. No, we read quite a bit. I think we were able to pull that together. Speaking of read quite a bit, ooh, it's Jed 13. And they're saying the kids are so-so instead of the kids are all right. Anyway, this is during the John Arcudi, Gary Frank era, which we discussed with William Bruce West recently. But what you need to know, on the run from international operations, the Gen 13 gang and their mentor, John Lynch, have relocated from New York to sunny Florida. The good. The kids are all right, and that's thanks to some nifty characterization, whether it's Grunge's attempts to see Rainmaker naked, Freefall's nervousness in contacting her mom, or Burnout's incessant whining. These kids have distinct personalities. Also distinct is the intriguing use of the team's powers. Grunge camouflages himself as part of a brick wall to nail some bad guys, and disguises himself as a sandcastle to sneak a peek at Rainmaker, while Freefall uses her gravity powers to make a villain so heavy he falls down. The artist does a great job with facial expressions, adding to the light-hearted feel of the book. The bad. Uh... Where are the stories? Sure, there are a number of interesting subplots, but there's no meat to the book. Freefall's looking for her mom, Fairchild's coping with the potential evil future, the whole gang's on the run from Io, but that's it. Other than that, the book's going in no direction. Supporting cast? Besides Freefall's brief visit with her mom, there isn't one. These characters need to start hanging out with some other folks their own age. Villains? Let's see. There were the typical government goons, the big remote-controlled robot, a super-powered quadriplegic, and a bunch of zombie robots. Talk about lame for such a potential potentially powerful and fun supergroup, these guys haven't faced any cool foes yet. At times, the series gets a bit too hokey. The team flies around in a jet to find Grunge's missing hand by sensing it thousands of miles in the air, and in the same issue, the villain admits that he can cancel all of Gen 13's powers because he tested his own powers? Never mind how exactly, he says, ridiculously getting around that technicality. Overall, it seems Gen 13's trying way too hard to be the X-Men. Lynch is quickly becoming the driven headmaster Professor X was. Gen 13's potential
potential horrifying future is similar to the X-Men's Days of Future Past. And besides having mutant-like powers, the Gen 13 teens are outlaws, just like the X-Men. The buzz? Since artist J. Scott Campbell left the title, there ain't been much. Though that could change soon as the long-delayed animated Gen 13 movie may finally get on the schedule, as well as the upcoming toy line debut. The skinny? There's definitely some potential here, but these cool characters really need to be placed in some interesting stories with some real villains and a direction to their lives. The grade? A C. Yeah, I gotta agree, unfortunately. I've been collecting these more and more from the back issue bins just because, you know, I hopped off the book as soon as J. Scott Campbell did. And in reading them, yeah, we talked about Gary Frank's art not being right for the book, but also, yeah, they don't really do much. And it's a lot more mopey than, like, outrageous fun, you know, I guess is what we were buying the book for initially, and now they're trying to ground them more in angst. Again, too much angst doesn't work. Sprinkle in the angst with a little humor, with a little wackiness, and then you're in good shape, but don't make it all about angst, because the comedy really doesn't come through with Gary Frank's art in this era of Gen 13. All right, coming up next, though, Nightwing. Some fly, some don't. So this was Chuck Dixon and Scott McDaniel, who were appearing at Wizard World 98. <laughs> what you need to know. Nightwing, aka Dick Grayson, formerly the original Robin, is trying to clean up the seedy town of Bloodhaven. Working as a bartender by day, he dons his tights at night to cut down on the citywide corruption. Oh, I didn't know he got a job as a bartender eventually. The good. Nightwing's a kick-ass character. He's got a great heart and thinks things through. While learning about Gotham's devastating earthquake, Nightwing's out the door before the news reports even finished. And since Gotham's cut off from every land route, he takes a speedboat to Gotham Harbor. In issue 19 in particular is the best of the bunch, with Nightwing trying to save a bus full of passengers trapped in a crevice, filling quickly with water. It's about as tense and exciting as any comic can get. The interaction between Nightwing and the heroine Oracle is awesome. And despite the keen detective skills he's picked up from Batman, Nightwing's use of Oracle's computer hacking is sensible. Even Dick's relationship with his landlord Clancy is interesting. Since the series began, the two of them finally get to go out on a date together, only to see Dick make some feeble excuse to leave so he can clear up a Nightwing-related emergency. Nightwing is slowly establishing his own grotesque rogues gallery. In addition to Bloodhaven's crime lord, the brutish genius Blockbuster, there's Inspector Soames, whose head was twisted 180 degrees around by Blockbuster. Soames recently learned that doctors can't surgically reverse his head, or it'll kill him. The rundown Bloodhaven itself is a great character, a literal hell on earth, and thanks to the book unique art style, the town's appearance adds to the heavy mood in the book. Check out any issue's backgrounds to see subtle details like bullet holes in the walls. The bad. As cool as Nightwing is, his adventures are either really good or really cliched. In issues 17 and 18, Bad Bat, Deathstroke, it's a story too played out for our own tastes. We've been reading the whole misunderstood monster being abused approach since Spider-Man first met the lizard eons ago. And in the second Cataclysm issue, number 20, where Nightwing searches for Batman in the Batcave, nothing really happens. We're particularly disappointed in the portrayal of Deathstroke in issues 17 and 18. Instead of a superhuman mercenary, we get an above-average hunter who seems out of character, especially considering the long history between him and Nightwing. And what's with the ridiculous blue-gray costume? His original suit rocked! The buzz. Aside from having a decent following, Nightwing is riding a boost from the recent Batman crossover Cataclysm. The skinny? Nightwing's a great character in a great setting, but inconsistent plots make this book either hit or 
miss the grade a b so yeah i mean i feel like you know everybody's super excited about nightwing it's got a great start and you know every book is gonna kind of hit a slump what i'm curious to know is how many issues did chuck dixon stay on and does he get his groove back you guys will have to tell me now finally here is an indie book that i've just never heard of strange haven they say extraordinary characters need better direction it says the genre is adult supernatural mystery the publisher is is ABO Genesis Press, and it looks like it's written and drawn by Gary Spencer Millage. What you need to know, and boy do I need to know. On vacation to get away from the problems of his life, schoolteacher Alex Hunter crashes his car and gets stranded in the weird but friendly village of Strangehaven, a place for reasons unknown that he's trapped in. The good. Strangehaven has an eclectic cast of characters, the quirky Mrs. McCready, who crazy glues her own teeth, Kent the constable, who keeps a physical inventory on everyone in town, from the fingernail clippings to hair fire. Adam Douglas, the neighbor who believes he's an alien, and of course the main character Alex Hunter, who's an everyday man with love troubles, trying to figure out the direction of his life. You actually feel like this town exists, full of real people, quirks and all. Strange Haven's personalities are great, and the thought-provoking dialogue between them is even better. Then you've got the subplots, the on-again, off-again relationship between Alex and his girlfriend, Janie, the creepy Knights of the Golden Light organization with its cultish costumes and the magical tree girl, Alex, hits on his way into Strangehaven. These mysteries are involving and keep you intrigued about the town and its inhabitants. You want to know more. However, the bad. There is no main plot, only a ton of subplots crawling along at the same time. Among them, Alex trying to escape the village, Alex and Janie's relationship, and the secret scheme of the Knights of the Golden Light. Strangehaven suffers from too many good stories at once. The series needs more direction, more answers to key questions, loose ends tied up, and a lot more forward motion. And the inconsistent art only adds to the problem. While some scenes are lovely, others are poorly rendered and flat out confusing, like the auto repair scene in issue number one. A number of times it's taken us several panels to figure out which character is which, such as congregations with the Knights of the Golden Light or Janie's best friend Susie, who looks completely different between her first appearance in issue number one and subsequent issues. In a black and white book without coloring cues, more care has to be taken to alert the readers to who is who. The Buzz, an independent title, Strangehaven comes out too infrequently to build up any momentum, but a trade paperback is collecting the first few issues and is due out in July. The Skinny, the king of subplots and curious characters, Strangehaven has an awful lot going on, but no central plot to forward the story. As slow going as the plot threads are, we're fascinated enough by the characters to keep this on our reading list. The grade is a B. So Strangehaven better than Gen 13, according to Wizard at this time. Maybe the competition wasn't too stiff there. I do want to say though, this kind of cracks me up looking at the art, because this guy i mean i don't know who actually is talking here i thought it was going to be the alex character but either way it's this guy with like super long scraggly kind of 80s mullet style hair and a long mustache and he kind of looks like john wesley's ship if he was living in a trailer park uh, in this era or jake the snake roberts in any era <laughs> when i post this on social media tell me if you agree but there you have it that's the report card for issue 85 of wizard now before we close out here I did want to check out one more thing, which is they've been doing these character profiles in the magazine. Usually they're these big, like two page spreads with a huge picture of the character. But in this case, it's just a half page and they're covering Supergirl. Now, this is an era of Supergirl that I was not reading. This is like where she's some sort of like angel now or something. And they don't even really give you a, a huge breakdown of her. But they do say here, check out our fiery friend in Supergirl number 26 this month. That issue will reveal 
reveal the true identity of Comet, resolve Linda's parents' marital problems, identify the second Earth-born angel, and introduce a strange familiar foe. Says writer Peter David, as seen in issue number one, a lot of Supergirl's protoplasmic matter is gone. But there are going to be ramifications of that. The protoplasmic matter has been somewhere this whole time. It's coming back, and it's pissed. So reading that, that makes no sense to me. I have no idea what this book is about. And they actually don't do a great job of laying it out, unfortunately, because they give her origin. But the origin here is all about a shape-shifting life form from a destroyed parallel Earth. Supergirl was brought to our dimension. Like, it's just, it's doing all the stuff from the early 90s. It doesn't really tell you, like, why is she an Earthborn angel now? It just says Supergirl's now one of these three Earthborn angels here to protect the righteous from evil. But anyway, they're breaking down her powers, and that's the main point of this. So they say flame vision. She could shoot flames out of her eyes and even reduce the power bad spirit of Despero to a pile of ash. Telekinetic blast. Big monkey alert. Supergirl killed Gorilla Grodd by using a powerful telekinetic blast to dislodge a huge icicle that skewered him in the chest. Wow, they're killing off a lot of classic villains here. Flight. Her telekinesis powered flight helps Supergirl avoid the demon lord Chakot's vicious claws. Shapeshifting. She once impersonated Superman. Nowadays, Supergirl's protoplasmic body can only morph into her secret identity, Linda Danvers. Flaming wings! They don't help her fly, but Supergirl's newly sprouted wings can scorch badass villains and absorb fire from burning buildings. Being angelic, they only harm those who would harm others. Near invulnerability. Thanks to her telekinetic defenses, Supergirl survived being absorbed in the toxic innards of chemo. Teleportation. Her new angelic wings somehow let Supergirl teleport herself and anyone else she's holding on to, such as the drowning hero Comet. Superhuman strength. Talk about arms of steel. Supergirl once lifted a battleship. Yeah, a battleship. Super skirt. Unless you want to feel this angel's wrath, don't peek underneath, bucko. Her undies are blue, okay? Oh my, what? Come on. All right, well, there you go. Learning more about Supergirl of this era, does it make me want to read more? I don't know, sort of. Sounds like she's killing a lot of bad guys. Well, that does it for this episode. And here's the thing. We're kind of entering a new era of the podcast. I have a new co-host on the main episodes. Mike Schwartz will be here for episode 86. Michael's moving into his other role, making sure that he's able to schedule some awesome interviews. And the most awesome of all is Garib. Seamus. That's right. We have recorded our interview with Garib Seamus. That is the thing to look forward to, guys. This has already been getting rave reviews from our patrons who received it a couple weeks early. It is a fascinating interview. He was so candid. He was so thoughtful in his responses. We asked him just for an hour. He gave us two. For that reason, we're actually going to release this interview in two parts, just so you can absorb the first part of the conversation then get into the rest of it, because Garib, what a guy, uh, really had a lot to say and really like some insight, just things, you know, we've been reading the magazine all this time. We learned things we'd never heard before. I mean, it makes sense. He was the guy running the thing, right? As far as when it's going to be released, like I say, our patrons already received the uncut version of the episode, but we decided we did not want it to get lost in like all the holiday travel and everything else. People might miss the interview. So first thing in January is when the Garib Seamus interview will drop. That is the plan to kick off the new year. Definitely something to look forward to. Make sure you're subscribed on whatever podcatcher so you do not miss this one. Tell your friends. I'm sure it is going
going to bring in a lot more people for 2024, in which, yes, Mike Schwartz and I will be hosting the main podcast. Uh, We're going to be doing a lot more little projects here and there that might spice things up for you, because we're still going to have mini episodes, still doing the Wizard Files, still going to do our bonus episodes here and there covering the specials. Speaking of which, coming up after this mini episode, we have our X-Men special, the Wizard special publication from 1998, getting everybody hyped about the Steven T. Siegel, Joe Kelly era of X-Men. We have two great guests who know it well. They were a wealth of information. One is a returning guest, the other is a first-timer, but you're really going to want to enjoy that. That is our holiday gift to you, so stay tuned. We got YouTube videos. We got it all, but there's some other surprises in the works that we will keep you informed of as soon as we are moving forward uh, in a big way on those. But you know where to find us to stay up to date on the latest Wizards, the podcast guide to comics news. Oh, on X at Wizards Comics, on Instagram at Wizards underscore comics, on Blue Sky at Wizards Comics. Of course, the Facebook, you can go over there, Wizards, the podcast guide to comics. Our YouTube channel, find Wizards, the podcast guide to comics over there. Uh, We're continuing to release interesting videos. If you haven't watched it yet, we have our previews 1993 catalog where I went through every single page of it. Man, that was an interesting ride. And we may have another one coming up for you soon as well as other videos that we are planning for you. But also get on over to Patreon. Just talked about it. Patreon.com forward slash Wizards Comics. Support the podcast and get so much for your $5 a month. There's a lot of cool stuff that we have been releasing in addition to 90s Super Cinema. Right now I'll tell you we just released our review of The Punisher 1989 which really just encompassed every Punisher live action film that ever came out so that was a really uh, unexpected discussion the way that went. But also uh, we are going to be covering in the month of December female superhero movies. So what are our patrons voting on? They're voting on Supergirl, Tank Girl, or Barb Wire. We will see who wins that competition. I'm really curious. We were just talking about Supergirl. Maybe she'll get the rub from that. But we're getting a lot of conversation going and that is the most fun to kind of have this group of really dedicated, really enthusiastic listeners who are interested. They're making suggestions. They're giving us opportunities to say, hey, maybe we could do this a little differently. So you can get in there and affect the podcast, be a part of that community in a big way. Plus you get to uh, have your own PDF copy of the issue. That seems to be what most people initially get in for. And I haven't heard any complaints. People love flipping through those things and just having that nostalgic rush. But you should be getting ready for the rush of excitement and all that is to come in 2024. I hope you have a fantastic holiday season and look forward to a new year of opportunity and adventure. But in the meantime, keep your books bagged and boarded. This has been a presentation of the Retro Network.